Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 32. This week, we talked to Atlee Hunter about designing your apps for monetization, SSL, all the things, cash is the new RAM, and a picture is worth a thousand words. Hey, Carl, get any good tech deals? I haven't gotten any good tech deals, but uh, I, I know you got several. Yeah, well, so this episode should be coming out on Black Friday, so there's going to be a lot of deals on that day, and I probably won't be able to resist a few of them. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I was on the Microsoft store and I saw a couple. There was a Lumia 635 for 39 bucks. So I ended up buying one of those. Uh, I just couldn't I couldn't stop myself. So I think I'm going to use that as a as a test device. But um, that's a heck of a deal right there. So I was just seeing if you had any other deals that you heard of. Uh, So anyway, today we have Atlee Hunter. So he is the most prolific app developer on Windows and Windows Phone. He's a hardcore geek, full time app developer, MVP. And he's always ready to lend a helping hand or offer advice. Welcome, Atlee. How's it going? Good, good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Yeah, uh, great to have you on the show. Um, I know we've talked before. Carl and you have talked before. So um, th- this is great. We want to get you on the show because we know that you uh, you have enough content in your head to probably fill uh, 10 different episodes. But uh, we got you for one. So we'll we'll make do. <laughs> We'll see what we can squeeze out. Yep. So let's jump into the news. So the biggest story of the week is that I got my Microsoft banned. (laughs) 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 And Carl is weeping. I'm jealous. Yeah. So mine yet. Yeah. So I, I can tell you a little bit of a story here. So I literally got the last one from the Microsoft store, from the online store. So I ended up, I, I don't want to go into details about it happened, although they have patched this uh, through, you know, there was like a, uh, what was it? It was two o'clock Eastern or one, was it one or two o'clock Eastern that they uh, said that they were going to have some more bands in stock online. And I was actually talking to some people cause I was, uh, I was at work. I was out in uh, Redmond and uh, somebody said something about the band. I said, Oh shoot. And I just ran away cause I knew I had to order mine. I even had an appointment on my calendar and all that. But it was uh, it was 10 minutes after. And when I got back, I was able to put it in my cart, but I was not able to check out. It was out of stock in, in that short of a time. So anyway, the next day, I can't remember exactly, um, um, you know, why I had gone back. But I went back to the store. And again, I don't want to go into the details, but suffice it to say, I was able to check out my band. And 20 seconds later, I got an IM from somebody on the store team saying, how did you do that? You're not supposed to be able to do that. Um, so I helped them uh, patch their their bug. Um, and uh, I got the last ban because of that. So I just, I really lucked out there. I didn't think I was going to get one. But anyway, I like it. Um, I really, you know, we I know we talked about this whenever we had Anthony on, but uh, um, I know people say it's uncomfortable. It's actually not uncomfortable. My only complaint is your shirt sort of gets hung up on it because it is, you know, it does stick out a little bit. But other than that, the notifications are really slick, not having to pull out your phone. I know we've heard all that before, but um, um, in general, I think it's good. And I mean, this thing could only get better. I mean, the the next version, I'm sure, would would be would, you know, take some of this feedback into account and be even better. So I like it. Do you have one, Antley? No, not yet. I'm waiting for mine. Should be should be coming any day now. Hopefully. Did you order one? uh, No. Well, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you're getting one. I got it. I'm getting one. I got it. Okay. 
okay, so what do we got next? A certificate authority to encrypt the entire web a certificate. Oh, you got that in there twice. <laughs> I'm reading the title twice. To, so, to encrypt the entire web. What is this, Carl? So the EFF uh, is recognized that the kind of a, the state of encryption on the web is kind of broken. It's it's hard. It's expensive. Not everybody does it. And their goal is to create a mechanism in order to kind of automate all this cruft, make it free, at least for the security aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Because if things are encrypted, then, you know, at least the traffic that you're going through, you know, can't be inspected as deeply. Right. And and. And they, they're also trying to create a system behind the scenes so that you don't have some of the the problems like, oh, this the certificate, you know, got hacked or something and now we have to revoke it. And that's a huge problem. Um, you know, have have a very short expiring certificates, maybe in the fe- in as short as a few days that automatically renew themselves. Oh, that's and interesting to have that infrastructure in place to do that. Um that way, even if we don't get like the the parts of the certificate that, you know, verify that you are this website, you at least get the parts that say, hey, people can't use wire sheep to go sniff my stuff. And the government has a slightly harder time getting in my stuff. And in all of those other negative things, they kind of become a thing of the past. You know, let's move the Internet a few years into the future, you know, by by automating all of this. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. I ended up, um, the way we did it for the msdevshow.com, there is a HTTPS version of it. And I ended up getting a free certificate, which is certainly possible, but I, I know that there's like different levels of certificates, but this is kind of a, a neat approach to it. Okay. Yeah. And, and not only that, but if I recall, it was a big pain for you to actually apply that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you remember some of the messages I sent. It wasn't fun. It, it definitely needs to be more streamlined. You you should. This should be a 10 minute thing. That way, there's really no reason to to not do it. And I know. Um, and, uh, and one of their goals is to get the setup time down to 20 to 30 seconds. It says yeah. that right there in the article. So, OK, it, yeah. it'll be interesting to see if they can do this. They did say they plan on having this rollout sometime next year. OK. Yeah, and I would recommend checking out uh, TroyHunt.com. So he does a lot of um, uh, security talk. Or he talks about security quite a bit. And he's the one, I, I think, who, you know, people have said, well, I don't, I have all public information on my site. And he's got some good reasons why you should still use uh, SSL. Uh, okay, what do we got next? Azure Outage. So this was a fun one. Um, so I'm pretty much so other than what's written in here i really can't say anything but the um i know that more information will probably come out over time but uh there was a there was a service disruption to uh to azure storage which ended up knocking out all of the the various services and i have a feeling that there's going to be some process changes and some lessons that come out of this as always cuz you know it it's it's always unfortunate because this always uh sort of hurts you know, the, the cloud name, right. You know, people, people, this is what scares people from the cloud, but the way I always see the cloud, I always compare it to, um, you know, somebody running a data center or running their own infrastructure. And the thing is they have, you know, they have to go through all the same lessons, right. Um, you know, if we, if we just ignore all of the advantages of the cloud, that person that's running a data center still has to, um, you know, run into these, these issues one by one and sort of come up with this 
these processes around how they do updates and things like that. And we've seen that with some services, you know, you get some new startup and, and they're pretty unreliable in the beginning and look at Twitter, Twitter had a, had a heck of a time there, um, you know, keeping their service running and part of it was load, but there was just other reasons why they ended up going down. Um, so I think it's a little bit, uh, it's really unfortunate that, that this is going to give cloud a little bit of a bad name when it's really just technology in general is, is complicated. And, I, uh, I always look at this as, you know, this is, this is everything that happens in, in, in a cloud service like this only happens once. Um, because like I said, the processes are changed and things improve over time. Well, it's also the impact is really, really high when something like this happens. So they, right. they really take, take notice of it and they, they, there's usually a much wider swath of data that can be collected because of it, because there's right. usually so much involved that it gives them a lot more to work with. So they actually have more tools and more information in place to try and make sure things like this don't happen again. Yeah. So if you, that's a good point. I mean, if you made a list of all the sites that went down in the past year that weren't on the cloud, I mean, think about, think about how huge that is. Um, so yeah, this was, this was all in sort of one central location. It was one issue. Um, yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's a lot to learn from this and I, I think it's, I don't think the right answer is to say, oh, the cloud, you know, look, look, it's unreliable. Don't don't run it on there. Um, you know, Amazon had they had an outage. Um, I know lots of, you know, major e-commerce sites have gone down, um, you know, that were running their own infrastructure. Um, it, it just happens. And and to think that somebody has 100 percent uptime in their own data center, I think, is a, is a bit of a fallacy. Well, 100 percent uptime just isn't possible right it's just there's there's too much involved there's too many numbers involved yeah. it doesn't matter whether you're hosting it yourself or you're putting it on a service like the cloud service the uh the thing that i still find really important to remember is that the cost for getting the level of reliability that you get on the cloud is so much less yeah than doing because I've, I've worked with companies that have you know data center components and, and it's expensive. It's incredibly expensive. And this um, Azure services like Azure and, and Amazon and things like that really allow you to sort of um, operate at scales that you just couldn't do even 10 years ago, five years ago. That's true. In 15 minutes, you could set up, you know, two websites uh, within different regions, uh, throw a traffic manager in front of them. And for, I don't even know, uh, 200 bucks a month, have a high availability option that that's, that's pretty darn good. And to build that out yourself would be, would be pretty, it would be a pretty huge undertaking. Well, it would be, it would be, uh, it would be a month of research alone. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. then, and then your implementation, your testing, your staging, yeah. and then your posting, it's just not happening that fast. Yeah. And then, like I said, I mean, your it will go down because you will make mistakes. You know, that's yeah. it. It just it just is the reality. And I know that Azure has been really open. If you look at I think it was that build. I don't know if it was the last one. I, yeah, I think it was the last build uh, build 2014. Mark Rusinovich had a uh, presentation where he went through and he talked about very openly about all the outages and uh, some of them weren't even public. So, you know, it was pretty I think it was uh, pretty open in saying, hey, we had this outage. You guys didn't even know about it, but here's what happened here's why it's not going to happen again. And those were all, you know, unique things that again, uh, could happen really anywhere. Well, and it's just, uh, like, like you just said that they mentioned all these different outages. And one of the things you've got to remember is that 
um, one outage is not the same as another outage. There's different levels and different types of outages and different things will be affected or won't be affected. Part of the strength of the cloud is that there's a lot of catches, checks and balances in place oh, to help yeah. cut down the, 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 um, the outage uh, or, or the effect of the outage as a whole. This one just ended up being a, uh, a significant one that, yep. that caused, caused you to even notice. Yep. And automation is usually how these are fixed so that it just can't happen again. Um, so that's, that's really important and, and things just keep getting better. Um, the other thing is, you know, my, like my sites went down and you know what I did to bring them back up. I just waited. Uh, you know, that's, that's one big advantage at IC. I mean, I used to be, uh, I used to, you know, run a whole bunch of servers and whenever things went down, I was responsible for that. <laughs> it's nice to, it's nice to just be able to sit back and be like, well, I know my stuff is down and that's really, really unfortunate, but it, somebody else uh, is working on it in a very structured way and I can, I can just wait and it will get fixed. It was the same thing here too. And, and we just had a whole bunch of snow here. So mm. no, I, I definitely wouldn't want to have to track down at two o'clock <laughs> in the morning to a data center yep. to start working out to figure out what the heck went wrong. Um, and the funny thing is, is that, yeah, it sounds like you're like, oh, well, I'm just stuck sitting and waiting. Well, realistically, you're going to tell the exact same thing to your clients you would have told if it was an in-house yep. hosted um, issue. And for the first clients that call or the clients that call, you won't have any more information than you had with the Azure outage. Yeah. And you would just be saying, we're working on it. We're getting it up as fast as we can. And, uh, you know, please just let Titan, you know, apologize for the, yep. the issue. Except and you'd be busy handling that call and not working on the issue. <laughs> exactly. Which would then make it slower. Whereas now you can actually just handle your clients. You can manage your business. You can manage the impact that's had on your business. And that's really all you have to worry about. Wow. Even, even downtime has a positive side effect in the cloud. Wow. We've, <laughs> we've really spun that one. <laughs> uh, anyway, we should probably you move get, on. <laughs> you get more coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, so anyway, let's see here. Google is helping users find mobile friendly pages. Yeah. Some of you may have noticed already that if you're doing a, a, a Google search uh, right underneath where it displays what the URL is, um, if they deem that your site is mobile friendly, they will actually put the words mobile friendly right there. And uh, they're using a, a, a few different criteria for that. Uh, so they're making sure that you're avoiding Flash or other similar types of software like that, um, that you're using text that you can see without zooming, um, that you don't have to excessively horizontally or vertically zoom or, or scroll. And that your links are far apart so that people can touch things appropriately when they're using a mobile device. If you're still not sure if your your site is going to get that mobile-friendly tag and it is important to you, um, you can do a Google search for mobile-friendly test. And they've got a webmaster tool that you put in your URL and it'll do an on-the-fly scan. And it will tell you if you're mobile-friendly or not, according to them. And if you do pass, you will get that mobile friendly tag. So that is the same tool that they're using internally. Please tell me that if it's mobile friendly, it won't, I won't get that pop-up that says, Hey, there's an app available. And then, (laughs) and then, and then I'll go to the site. I'll be like, cancel. And then I'll go to the site and it will say, uh, you know, um, 
it won't it won't actually let me do anything that I actually want to do. So I hit full version and it'll take me to the front page. <laughs> Please tell me they take those out. <laughs> that is my biggest pet peeve with LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn is the biggest disaster for that. Right oh, I know. Now. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't I'm not logged into LinkedIn on the web. Exactly. And and you can't. It won't uh-huh. save certificate on any mobile device that I have. <laughs> So what happens is it forces me to go in. Well, sorry, it does save the cookie. It saves the cookie and it will bring me in, but it logs me in and takes me to the front page of LinkedIn, never to the thing that I got from my email, but quite often in the middle it goes, hey, get the app. Well, I have the app installed, all my Android devices, my iPhone devices, and my my Windows phone devices, and yet it always prompts me on their site to, hey, go get the app uh, with a picture of the app I have. (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's Which is almost mocking me. Yeah, it's incredibly annoying. See, I use a, I use a, a strong password on all the sites I go to. So yeah. LinkedIn, I have, I don't know my password. It is 20 characters of random garbage, right? And what ends up happening is um, like, let's say I'm logged into the LinkedIn app on the phone. Okay, I can use that. But then if I get an email notification, it will say, hey, this person, whatever. And of course, the email, for whatever reason, is cut off on my screen. I can't even read what it says. So I hit the button to go over to LinkedIn. It opens my browser and then it says like, you must log in to view this. And what kills me is it's, if it's not even, if it's like a news link or something, it's not even something that's top secret. Uh, it's just a horrible experience. So I just, I just don't use it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a horrible experience. I end up, uh, I, I, I used to do so much social interaction with developers and, and people on LinkedIn and now I'll, I'll answer messages on LinkedIn and, and I'll connect with people on LinkedIn, but I almost don't deal with the groups at all anymore because they just, they become useless. Yeah. I get, you know, those emails are immediately just thrown right into the trash now because I don't even, it, it's too time consuming to view them. Okay. Anything else about that one, Carl? No, it, other than the, that people are going to start seeing that. I noticed my, it's on my wife's account. She can see that mobile friendly results and People, if they start noticing it, that you might want to make sure that your websites have that mobile friendly tag as well. Yeah, I think that's a great way to to increase uh, adoption on devices for sure. It's really cool. So the next one here is cash is the new RAM. Did you look at this one, Carl? I only glanced at it. It, Yeah, I read it a few days ago, so I'm a I'm a little out of speed. But what I do remember is there are the um, there's a whole bunch of slides in here, and I got such a kick out of this because. Well, first of all, the first one is prehistoric times and it's talking about the user and the user's a dinosaur and they go out to the internet and then there's a web server and as a database. So that's like, you know, back in the stone age, right? Actually pre, you know, pre stone age. But anyway, then they show uh, the year 2000 load balancing solves everything. And then they show a database as a single point of failure. 2002 replication solves everything. 2004 memcache D solves everything. 2004. Uh, it's actually the, this is the same thing. Oh, it's just a different drawing. Uh, 2006 sharding solves everything. 2008, no sequel solves everything. 2010 map reduce solves everything. Uh, and I love this too. Bringing yesterday's insights tomorrow, bringing you yesterday's insights tomorrow. Uh, 2012, no sequel solves everything again. Yeah, 2014. Fun, now what? Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I just, I got such a kick out of it. Yeah. 2014 sequel Ram clusters solve everything. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yeah, this was, um, I think he's just talking about the, uh, it's always, uh, fun reading about the relative performance of like the CPU registers versus a main memory versus an SSD drive, um, you know, versus like a, you know, spinning rust hard drive. Um, 
So he's talking about taking advantage of, of those various tiers in there. So anyway, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Oh, let's see here. A picture is worth a thousand words. Yep. Uh, it was kind of interesting. There's one piece of technology that was re- announced that um, these research groups have have done this week that was announced by both Google and Microsoft. And I think kind of how it was done was kind of interesting or kind of funny in relate to in relationship to the technology. So the technologies both have announced that they're, they're working on in their research groups um, the ability for uh, computers to be able to recognize what's in a picture and describe it via a sentence. So you could have like there is two loaves of bread sitting on the counter, for example, could be something that comes out from this. Well, uh, the thing that I thought was kind of funny is Google Research announced this earlier in the week today. And then the very next day, Microsoft Research announced <laughs> that they did it. But their interns did it. So it it just seems that how they announced it was a little bit uh, uh, competitive. But I I do think this technology is is pretty interesting. And I I see a lot of people, especially those with extensive photo collections, you know, getting some use out of this. Yeah. Have you, uh, you know, have you seen there's an app that does this on uh, on an iPhone? Have you seen it? I don't I don't remember what it's called. Somebody because we were we were talking to some uh, machine learning folks and they were. Uh, talking about doing image classification, like, oh, I have an app for that. And we're like, okay, well, I pull it out at dinner. And of course, you know, they take a picture of a glass and it says, oh, that's a, that's a glass and took a picture of a plate. That's a plate fork, you know? Okay. We're like, okay, well, there's like a old Brown, uh, like candle holder that was on the wall. I mean, it, it, you know, it was kind of artsy, right? Like no way it'll work on that. And he takes a picture and this is like, brown old candle holder and i'm like what what is going on here <laughs> um this is this is such neat technology though because this has implications on search and um i i don't know i i can't even this is this this could have you know huge implications yeah and the articles that we have um kind of just show the strengths and weaknesses of these systems too i mean google shows like you know some of the sentences that were generated that had nothing to do with the images Oh yeah, uh, you know, a yellow school bus parked in a parking lot. Parking lot. <laughs> it's just a, just a yellow car. A red motorcycle parked on the side of the road. I love that one. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a pink moped. <laughs> nice. And and the, and then the Microsoft one, they they show a, a picture of like everything that it detects. So it kind of shows you like this is why I'm classifying it this way. Uh, you know, like it it puts it puts a box around a lady's head and says woman, and it puts a a a box around somebody's arm and says holding oh, because yeah. they're holding a cell phone. So it's, it's kind of interesting seeing like, you know, the different approaches that these, these two research groups are, are making, but still coming to very similar results. This is cool stuff. Yeah. This is all about machine learning and classification. This is, this is such cool stuff. This is the beginning of the end people. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was thinking about this though. Um, you know, are we, and this is like totally outside of things that I understand, but you know, like, is this really making progress? Like this seems like a cheat to me. Like we're figuring out how to cheat. Like, you know, there, there's only so many things, common things that could be in a photo and it sort of looks at it and it's, it's like, well, I think it's this, uh, because I've seen enough of this before. Um, but it, it doesn't really like have any, like, knowledge about it at all it just seems like kind of a hack and i don't i don't know it sort of seems like that that you know 
those people that have mass study for a test and memorize all the answers yeah and they take it and they just spit out the crap that they learned yeah the exactly and they really don't know it they just manage to go here and spit over here which to you know to a point is how we do learn because we learn through repetition of yeah of of uh, observation but um it still feels very very eight bit at the moment yeah. And I, I, I just wonder, like, does this actually help with any kind of AI? Cause yeah. What if I, what if I memorized a hundred books on programming? You know, it, it seems like that doesn't really get me anywhere. I still, I still have to make sense, really make sense of that data in a meaningful way. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to apply the information. It just means that it's, it's, it, it is showing that it can capture the information and it can start to apply it, but it's really, I mean, it's infancy level. Yeah. See, I, I see two sides of this too. As you as you guys are bringing these points up, I mean, one I, we've uh, seen like the auto journalism that's happened, where you know these computer programs just make up news stories. Not that the news is not happening, but it's I think, just I think it's, that's it, all of BuzzFeed. Yeah. Yep. But anyways, I mean, this technology could be used for that, and that would be kind of annoying. But if you could, you know, like you know, tie this into like with your Picasso library or something, and you could just do like a search for Grandma's Last Christmas. And then it shows up, you know, you know, all the pictures of grandma, you know, right before she passed away. I mean, that could be something that really becomes useful and personal for somebody. Oh, yeah. I think as far as searching, this is amazing. I mean, I at one point I attempted to tag, like in the early days of me taking photos, I was trying to tag the photos and I gave up. I mean, I literally have like 50,000 photos. It's not going to (laughs) happen. But but I would love to be able to search. Um, even the facial recognition, you know, to, to determine who it is, is handy. Um, but being able to search for certain things, like when my house is being built or just show me, you know, pictures of computers or something like that, you know, that, that would be awesome. So very useful stuff. Okay. So let's talk to Atlee. Um, let's see here, man, we could, uh, like I said, we could probably fill like 10 different episodes. So we got to start somewhere. Um, you know, we, you and I had talked, I think, Man, I think it's all, it's been a year and a half ago that you and I had talked. And uh, um, I know that you've talked about the psychology of app design and using that for to enhance monetization. Uh, do you want to explain that to us, how it works and to our listeners? Well, uh, I think that uh, it all sort of flows together like any like any form of, uh, of math or logic or, or, or art or in interpretation of anything else. Um, there is a sort of a lot of progression to how things work. And one of the things that I've spent the last uh, few years doing is talking to as many different people that do different things as I can to try and pick up different pieces of information and try to put them together, kind of like the machine learning, mm-hmm. to figure out what works <laughs> and what doesn't work. And so I find that uh, right now I'm spending as much time with my apps uh, experimenting on what you know, what works in what situation and what doesn't work in different situations, and I found some pretty interesting things. Um, as much as you need to focus on the usability of your app, um, you can apply that much uh, thought and information into how you are monetizing your app and how you're attracting the users and keeping them keeping them engaged, keeping them interested, keeping them willing to, to spend money and um, keeping them willing to spend even more money. So 
one of the things that I, I always talk to devs about when they say, well, you know, how do I make my app more successful? First thing you've got to do is define what the success is for you, right? I mean, not every app success is, not every app developer is saying, hey, I need to make a million dollars on this app. I mean, I'm sure we all would love to have every app we put out make a million dollars, but maybe that's not the success ratio. Maybe, I mean, I've written apps that were specifically built to help people do a particular function. I've worked with charities to help build apps to help people that needed help with a specific task or a specific function. Those are the successes of those apps. They were not ever meant to make money. They were not, they were, um, they might have ads or they might have something else in them to help make money to sustain the, the operation of their app and then the maintenance of the data. But realistically, the success is, needs to be defined first because you'll never achieve it if you don't even know what it is you're going after. That's such a good point. So that's, that's the first part that I usually talk to devs about because there's nothing wrong with making an app just to make the app and have the experience and understand sort of what it is. And, and what you're doing with it. My first 100 apps or so were basically me picking through the, the platform and understanding how different pieces worked and how they went together and learning and teaching myself about design and, and how different things went together and how things flowed and what things made users happy and which things didn't. So just like um, you want to engage conversations with your users, one of the... the um, things that I found that has been most profitable was sort of my turning point between being able to quit my job and just do app development for myself um, was that I started talking to the users. I started actively engaging the users to find out what things they wanted in the apps because I've written a lot of apps and a lot of people might think that I know exactly what should go into an app, but I will tell everybody, anybody that listens, that out of over 400 apps that I've built, I always put a list of what the features I think need to be added next. And there's usually five, 10, 15 um, features that I want to add because we all, we all do the exact same thing. We hate when our boss do it. When We hate when people scope, uh, creep our scope, but we're always the first ones to go, oh, I'm going to make this app and it's going to go to Facebook and Twitter and this <laughs> and that. And then, and then you got yep. 300 features and you're like, I don't have time for that. And you throw the idea away. Yep. So what they do is they say, make the small app, make the minimum viable product right? Get it out there, but engage the users in conversation. I've literally put apps out where most of the main screen was just a, a big button that said, what else do you want to see here? And literally engaged users to tell me what the app was missing or what it needed to do. And then when I built it, the downloads just went through the roof because I built exactly what the users wanted. Right. right? I find that even out of all of the apps that I've built, I'm still very, very seldom write about any of the top 10 features the users want first. So, I mean, that'll tell you how far off you, you could be as a developer. And But the thing is, you don't have to be dismayed by that. You use it as an opportunity to, to engage with the users and to learn from them. They will teach you more about development than you ever realize. The really cool thing about, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say one of the things that, you know, I just wanted to pick apart a little bit, you know, just a practical piece of advice. You said you you actually built a good chunk of the screen that that said, give me feedback. It's kind of like you almost had to, you know, hit the people over the head that, hey, you can talk to me. I do want this conversation. Oh, yeah. You definitely have to. Act, you're you're better off to actively engage them. One of the things that I tell people to use is uh, there are a number of different feedback and um 
uh, rating tools. And one of the best ones that I've seen is one that um, will engage the user after four or five uses of the app, which is sort of the sweet spot. Between four and, and seven uses of the app, you know the user's engaged in your app because they either, A, really like it, or B, even if they think it sucks, it does something they need to be able to do, right? And the funny thing is, I've found that users that are in that second group are sometimes more valuable to me than users that are in the first group. While those users will give me great ratings and, and that's fantastic and that's great, I learn from the users in the second group. I learn how to be more successful in that app and in others. And I've had some absolutely horrific emails from people like where half of the email was swear words and engaging the user properly and saying, you know, I'm really sorry that you're having problems with this app. How can I make it better for you? They're usually, first of all, shocked that they got an answer because realistically, when you think about how the users see us, they don't know that they don't have no idea whether I'm in my basement or I am in a 200 developer megacorp, building yeah. megacorp that is just pumping out this stuff. They have no concept. Whether your app looks like a basic design or not a basic design, the user really, most users do not have a concept of the difference between that. And if you think about how happy you as a developer, if you send an email to support or, or someone else and an actual person emailed you back instead of that, that auto response, we'll be back to you in 12 to 65 days. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the the impact that that has on you is multiplied a thousandfold by how the average user feels because they do feel lost when they have a problem and they're upset about something. They feel like they're shouting into the wind and they're not going to get it heard. You actively engaging with them and saying, listen, I'm really sorry. How can I, you know, what can we do to make it better? He ended up becoming one of my top testers and has downloaded a huge number of my apps and gives me great ratings. And on the apps he doesn't like, or he won't rate five or four, he will actively email me and say, hey, dude, this needs to be changed here, and then I'll give you a five-star rating. I'll be like, great, awesome. And that came from a person whose basic beginning email to me was, this app's pretty shit. That was his first email to me. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, is that I just had an, uh, a Skype message with someone like a day or two ago um, his name was, uh, Dominique Terry. And he was saying, I heard you talk about this somewhere and I tried the exact same thing and it, it completely worked. He said, the guy is so happy with me now. He gave me a five-star rating. He's recommended to me to people. He's, he's, it's so, I mean, it's not just me that's done it. I know other developers that have seen this happen, and it's really, really true. If you engage them, they will tell you what to do. Now, where that comes into monetization is the features that people ask for are the features people will pay for. So if you create your minimum viable product and then create a way for the users to give you feedback, then you take some of that feedback together and turn them into two or three features and turn that into a feature set. That can now become an in-app purchase to enable these features you know people want. Man, that's, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's such a good idea because they, they've already gone through all the work of requesting it. So it, if it's important to them, you know, multiply them times a hundred or a thousand or 10,000. They have pre-authorized <laughs> the fact that they, they want that, right? Like they've basically pre-vetted. It's like a Kickstarter a in your app. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like a little Kickstarter in your app. Um, 
so that's a fantastic way to, to and literally I make a good deal of my money that way mm-hmm. by by selling features that people have asked me to build. And the cool thing is the the users really like it because they're like, oh, it feels like custom dev for them. They got custom dev. Like how many people um, do you know? How what, what do you think? Have you guys ever built an app or anything for your mom or your sister or your brother? Mm-hmm. And then go, look, look, he built this for me. I'm the reason that this exists. <laughs> People love that. It's yeah. absolutely fantastic. I've done that for my mom. I've done that for my fiance. They're like, oh, there's an app. I love this app because it's mine and it feels personal. And that creates that really real uh, engagement with the users that helps to build a brand. Now, that's sort of the second thing you want to do is you want to make sure that you create a strong and positive brand recognition. Mm-hmm. So you create something that the users can identify because I have found that a, a surprising number of my users have more than two or three of my apps on their device. So that is, and especially if you've got in-app purchases in some of those, those people are already pre-vetted and predisposed to be willing to pay you and support you for the work that they're doing because they know the quality, they know the level, and they know what they're getting from it. Right. So again, that's another case of allowing your user base to pre-vet themselves. Yeah, to help you make money. Yeah, as a as a user, I look for brands that I trust, and I, I see that happening more and more. So, I mean, there used to be a day that I'd install anything, right? And then viruses kept getting worse and worse. And now it's not even viruses; it's well, it is, right? But they're hidden in like legitimate looking software, and mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, this this looks totally legit, and people are vouching for it. And then you install it and here it's got, you know, a a virus, which gives you, you know, malware that gives you 10 other viruses and it's just ridiculous. So I, I, I am, I am so careful now, obviously it's a little bit different with apps, but just in general, I've gotten in this mindset of, you know, like I need to, I need to trust this thing that I'm getting, um, because I've been burned so many times in the past. No, I can completely, I can completely relate. And, and the users, it, what you've really got to think about as a developer or as an IT specialist is anything that bothers or concerns you is absolutely horrifying to the average right. user, right? I mean, take whatever, like, oh, that's kind of annoying. Well, take that annoyance and add fear to it, and that's your user base mm-hmm. because they don't understand. I mean, I, I bring these these instances up in talks all the time, but, I mean, there was a, a spoof on the Internet for iPhone five that told you that the new iOS uh, seven update made your phone waterproof and over 10,000 people apparently destroyed iPhones and iPads (laughs) testing it. Yeah. Well, just this. And and then, so sounds hilarious, but the thing is they don't understand that that's not possible. Mm -hmm. Right. And why should they, it's an appliance for them. It's an appliance. It's supposed to do what it's supposed to do. And if they, hear something or see something that looks reasonable from someone that looks like an expert, they are going to take that as a value. Mm-hmm. Just like, and the funny thing is even after that issue happened and it was so widely publicized in news articles and everything else, they did it again this year with the wave uh, on iOS eight. When the wave, uh, they said that there was a new wave update that if you threw your phone in the microwave for no more than a hundred seconds, it would charge your phone instantly. <laughs> And people blow up phones and yeah. microwaves. So, I mean, this is, that's your, folks, that's your user base. <laughs> you know, <laughs> play with them gently. They're fragile. Um, 
but but play with them like like engage them get them interested get them involved and that is probably the most valuable thing i could i could give to a developer is make sure you're engaging the user base the more users you have and the funny thing is it doesn't have to be i don't need a million users to to be successful i have an app out there that i've managed to engage the user base fairly effectively and it has about 10,000 users and makes about 50 cents per user per month mm-hmm Right. Um, that's a really good amount of money. Yeah. And I don't need to have 500,000 users. I'd love to have 500,000 users, but I don't need to for that app to be more than supporting itself. Mm-hmm. Right. More than supporting the dev that I did in it, more than supporting, you know, whatever money it's costing to manage back end services or anything else for it or to support it or, or keep it up. Um, and that's because I've engaged the users and that's because the app itself engages the users and that is what you want to do. If you can make something that engages the users, makes them smile, makes them happy, that will become a successful app. And it's all about scaling that. Now, I've also heard that you've found ways to get feedback from the users on what they'll even pay for your features. Can you go into the, some of the various techniques that you've, you've used in that way? Um, I've literally, um, I've got a couple of apps where I have actually started uh, creating pop-up surveys on um, on um, updates. So when I do an update, it'll pop up the first time after the update runs and goes, for the next, so in this version, you've got this, and in the next version, I'm going to do either this, this, or this. Which one's most important to you? And, and then um, I've even, I'm working on other ones where I've got, um, I'm thinking about doing this. Would you pay 99 cents for this or would you pay more? Or would you pay, you know, would you pay 2.99 for this or 1.99 for this or would you pay this much for a bundle? So the interesting thing is that I found is that creating multiple options for users is infinitely more uh, profitable than giving them one choice. Right? So um to give you an example, I could have an app that has maybe seven really strong features in it. I could bundle those features, two features each, two features each for 99 cents, or maybe four features for $2.99 or $1.99, and then all of the features for $2.99. If I do that, I am going to hit a much larger number of people than if I just went, here's the new update and it's $1.99, or even if I said, here's the new update, all these features 99 cents. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, cutting them up into subsections and then allowing people to buy different subsections or buy different groupings of them makes more money than offering all of them for 99 cents, which sounds counterintuitive, but there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of psychological reasons for that. Um, and it just goes to the way how we choose and how we, we value things. One of the biggest things to do is make sure that you do not undervalue what you're doing and make sure that you are providing value for the money. So it's a, it's a, it's something that you're going to have to experiment with. And that's the other thing is don't be afraid to experiment. I have some unmitigated disasters as apps, but the disasters are more valuable than the easy ones because they teach me how to do even more with the future ones, right? And there's nothing that says you can't do an update and put things that work into something that was previously disastrous. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Uh, so I, Speaking of income opportunities within the apps, I mean, obviously there's the, the app itself, whenever you sell it, making money off of that, 
You talked a little bit about the in-app purchases. Um, does that kind of cover the gamut for, for income opportunities or, or do you see more, more than that? Well, so I've done a couple of different, really interesting things. Um, I've got a few apps out there that, that make surprising amounts of money with a, a donation button. Hmm. So, um, for example, I've got one app, uh, don't step on the white tile. So if you go and look up, don't step on the white tile by happy dash monkey, mm-hmm. um, and look at the app, it's a very black and white, very plain screen, but the front screen has got a button on it with a heart, a red heart and a monkey face on it and nothing else. So it has over a hundred percent click rate. So for every person that's downloaded those, that button's been hit at least once. So it has a really high success rate of people clicking it. And what it does is it pops up a screen and it's a really interesting donation screen because there are no ads in the app. Mm-hmm. So it's literally just that. So it, it is really a donation. It really is just a donation. Hey, and I made the donation funny because it has a monkey face on it that pops up a little word bubble that says, hey, this is to keep me and Mrs. Monkey and bananas so that we can keep making great software. And you do something fun or something engaging, something that makes some people want to read it instead of just going, Hey, please give me money. I, I, you know, um, do something that is a little more engaging because there are a lot of choices out there. The other thing that I did, which I I thought, ah, we'll try this. And it was successful beyond all of my expectations. Um, there are four options to donate. You can donate 99 cents, a dollar 99, two 99 or four 99. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it took me about an extra half hour to make those other three options. And I would say that a good 30% of the people do not choose 99 cents. Oh, wow. So with not no, no other impetus in place other than just supporting the developer, if they find the app engaging or enjoyable, they will donate. And if you give them options, there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons that that happens, but they won't all choose 99 cents. Yeah, and even if they did, you're still in the exact same spot. You put it, you just put a ninety-nine cent button. Right, right. Cool, that's pretty neat. So, um, one thing that I wanted to ask you was about the the freemium model, which I, as a user, I find annoying, but I understand that it's very, very successful. Is that still on the rise? What's what's kind of the current thinking around the freemium model? I think it's I think it's still on the rise, but it needs I think that the biggest danger to the freemium model is people over gamifying things and over abuse and abusing the freemium model. The big problem is you've got people that are saying, okay, well now you've got to pay for just about everything. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I found and I I I say to developers that are having less success with the freemium model than they want to is give more stuff away for free. So I've got a Kino app that um, you, there's like six or seven different ways to get free coins to play Kino with. And I don't, it, it, you can play Kino with one coin at a time and sit there and play it forever. And the free ways that I give out coins give you away 250 coins, 500 coins. So they're not insubstantial. It's not giving away 10 coins or 15 coins. If I gave away, when I was giving away 10 or 15 coins, I was making no money. Mm-hmm. When I started giving away big piles of coins, 
it engaged the user because they wanted to play more. They wanted to have fun. And then when they got to the point, they get on a roll and they go, oh, what the hell, I'll spend 99 cents. And they'll buy 500 coins. Now, the funny thing is, is that how you handle the freemium model is very, very, very um, specific on, on how successful you will be. Now, in that particular instance, when you open up the, the buy coins button, you'll see that there are five options. And the five options are all very specifically designed and very specifically set up to get me the success that I want. Now, stunningly, the, the most common by far, by close to all purchases, is the largest option. So the 999 option. Well, because it's the best deal, right? Well, not just that it's the best deal because, I mean, there's a lot of things you could do to say it's a great deal and that's fantastic, but some people just aren't going to go, oh, well, it's 10 bucks, you know? So there's a bunch of different reasons. When you look at how you price your, your number models, um, using numbers that are similar to each other has a psychological effect of lessening the impact of what that value is mm -hmm. to the user. And also handling the way you create your graphics and how you create um, even different elements like uh, on the the Kino app, the font for the lowest bag is half a pixel smaller than all the rest of the fonts, and the font for the for the best option or the biggest option is half a pixel larger. So it literally has that slight impact, and it's funny that you don't pick it up just looking at it, but your brain does. Yeah. And so it has that psychological effect. So there's a lot of things that I've learned. Uh, I actually managed to sit. Uh, beside uh, a an uh, an ocular scientist, someone who studies the eye, how the eye works, and how the brain interprets what the eye sees. And I sat with him on a trip all the way to Seattle, and that was probably the most valuable six hours of my life uh, in the last couple of years because I learned so much about how to improve my design of my app, how to make elements more engaging on the screen, and also how to affect the influence and the, the interaction that I wanted on specific elements on the screen. So like I said, by making the font slightly larger on one side, making sure that it's not, it should not necessarily be noticeable. Mm -hmm. Like don't make it five points bigger. You can, right. you can make it five points bigger, but then it becomes obvious. And once it hits an obvious range, the brain goes, uh, caution, right? It's sort of like if you were, if you're at a, at, at a burger shop and you're going to buy a burger, you could look at the burgers and they could be like one patty, two patties, three patties, 15 patties. Well, no one's going to buy the 15 patty burger because how the hell do you get that in your mouth? Right. And so that sort of has this one bite at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Only if it has bacon. <laughs> but. But but it has a similar impact where it where it sort of goes oh that's less reasonable because it's it's oversized to to excess. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of different things that you can learn and there's a lot of great materials online that you can you can find about marketing and advertising. And one of the things is that if as an app developer you want to make money at it, if money is your goal and 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 you know you want to be you know, financially successful with your apps, you have to realize that um, you do have to understand this stuff because you're not just an app developer. 
you're also a marketer, you're also a support technician, you're also uh, an architect, you're also, you know, you're, you're wearing many hats and you have to understand that and, and realize that those are the costs of being able to do business in this kind of economy and this kind of market. Um, apps are plentiful and all the marketplaces have got lots of apps. So if you want to be able to engage the users, you do have to sort of think about, you know, how you do things, do things a little differently. I've got a few apps that will, uh, if the user wants them to talk to them about different things or read out certain things or have different things to create different impacts to set them aside from the ones that don't so that I can engage certain uh, groups of, of you know, the app audience or the app market to, to that particular app or those particular apps. Um, creating strong brands has a, a really, really big impact and nothing has a bigger impact than engaging your audience. So I, um, I just want to throw out an example here. So I have uh, age of empires, castle siege on my phone here. And I play yep. this, uh, more than I'd care to admit. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at the, the in-app purchases, not that I've looked at that before, but there's, uh, there's an interesting psychology now that you mentioned the whole font thing. I'm looking back at this and you can buy like, first of all, they, the more you see buy you can buy gold in this and gold lets you sort of cheat. Um, cause you can use gold to buy anything. They, yeah. Normally you'd have to use resources so you can get 80 gold for 99 cents, which I, it doesn't get you anything. That'd be idiotic to buy 80 it gold. Gets you a new shirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what I just noticed, and I'll show you on, on the, on the camera here, but obviously the listeners can't see it. See how it's like a pile of gold. Yeah. Okay. So that looks appealing, but then I scroll over and I see 1200 gold for $10. So I'm already kind of doing the math in my head. I'm like, wow, that's a way better deal, but notice, and then 2,500 gold is $20. Notice it's not a pile of gold. Now, now it's a bag of gold and the bag, there's two different size bags. So the bag gets bigger, the more money you spend. And then if I move over, like you can spend up to a hundred bucks at a, at a, at a swipe on this thing. So uh, 6,500 gold cost me 50 bucks and it's like in a wooden crate, you know, like it's just, it's not delivered. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, no. It's like, it's just like, oh, well, here's your gold. You, you know, cheap, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but if I spend a hundred dollars, it comes with a root. So here, here's the picture. It comes with a really nice treasure chest. And so I, I didn't, you know, I didn't even, I was like looking at the numbers, but I, I never even realized that there's like a subtle psychology going on there. You know, because as you're like swiping, you know, and looking at kind of the the higher purchase options, it's just like each one makes the one before it seem like you're being cheap. <laughs> yeah. And there's there's an interesting another interesting philosophy is that um, putting putting the um, the in-app purchases in selections where you, the user can see um You'll notice that in your in-app purchase, when you're looking at that, you could always see an odd number of, of purchases on the screen at any one time, right? Mm -hmm. There was always an odd number of options. The reason be Ah, so you could pick the reason, middle one. No, because most people will pick the one to the right of middle. Okay. So that automatically triggers. That makes sense. So um, if you were to have five options, uh, it's just like when you, when you do those talks. At, at user groups, and then you hand out the surveys, what's the most common grading? It's four for everything, right? Everybody goes, I'm not going to give them perfect, but I'm not going to give them, I'm not going to be just average. I'm going to give them the middle one. Right? Yeah, because yeah, five would be like the greatest speaker of all time. 
Exactly. And, and, and there's only one person that's that. So everybody else has to get a four or below. But it's, it's also, it's more than that. It's more of the, uh, impactful, uh, perception of yourself mm-hmm. and how you see yourself as better than average, but you don't want to be boastful and say you're perfect. And that sort of gets reflected in how you grade other things. So that also goes towards how you make in app purchases, how you trigger things. So if you looked at my, my Kino app, you would see that there are five choices. And so the logical choice from that point would be the 499 choice. Now, um, did you say that the choice on there was 999 or $10? Uh, 999. Yeah, so 999. So the impact of having 999 versus like 1049, if they'd made it 1049, they'd make far less money mm-hmm. on those choices just because 10, 1049 is four digits in a decimal point. Right. Whereas 999 is three digits of the decimal point, which doesn't have as high an impact on you emotionally as as 1049. And it, so it's it's more you know that it's more than 499, but it doesn't really strike you as it's just like if someone said, hey, this is going to be 1999 or someone says this is going to be twenty two dollars. Right. Twenty two dollars yep. seems like too much. But if you saw it for 99, like, oh, that's a great deal. Cause it's under 20 bucks and it's just, it's really not. It's, it's, it's also like when you buy gas, I was just thinking of the gas, gas, and gas is like oh, four or a- six cents less a gallon. And you're like, if yeah. you really factor that out, you saved 30 cents and drove two miles to get it. I know. I know. <laughs> well, plus I just hate the, the practice that they do where it's like, yeah, this gas is two sixty nine, but really it's two sixty nine point nine, which is, oh, yeah. like, come on guys. You're I, just taking this I, a little too far. How does gas? How do how do gas people get to avoid how math rounding works? I know, I know. <laughs> for money, nobody else gets to do it for money. Like I, I guarantee you that if at the end of the night the employee went, oh, it was hundred, it was a hundred and ninety dollars, not a hundred and ninety nine dollars. I'm yeah. pretty sure they'd have a, a a problem with that, right? Yeah. But yeah, it's it, but it, it, there is a a lot of subtle psychology involved in how that all works and how that all goes together. One thing I will recommend to developers is if you're going to do a multi in-app purchase and you're going to offer several options, don't ever make it just the numbers. If it's just the numbers, it has a much lower impact, but it also stresses to the person all you're doing is spending money. <laughs> right, right. Right. If you show them, you give them like like they did in that in that app you just showed. Yeah, yeah. True um, just. They show you treasure chests yep. and all these things. You don't get any of those. Those things don't even appear in the game. It's no, not like it's a treasure point. chest. It's not like a treasure chest falls out of the sky and lands next to your player and goes, you <laughs> struck it rich. Nothing. Yeah. You just get numbers go up on your on your little thing up in the top corner of the screen or the bottom of the screen. Um, so it it's really funny, but that impact of those images is really big and it can't be can't be stressed. Mm-hmm. So kind of going back to, you know, getting feedback from our users, I, I know a lot of people out there are going to be like, well, I haven't made an app yet, or I've got a couple apps out there and I, I don't have a whole lot of users, you know, me. What, <laughs> what, what, what kind of like minimum people using your app does it take for you to start getting feedback? Even if you are kind of doing some of the right things with trying to get that interaction and conversation going. One. <laughs> seriously if i had a, a user if i had an app that had only one download right i would literally make an update in the app to have the app just ask that guy a question 
<laughs> I'm serious. I would literally actively go, hey, thanks for downloading the app. What's your favorite thing about it? What do you like least about it? What should I do next? Because literally at that point, I built that app for that guy. So he's my boss. So the funny thing is I always thought that when I got out of corporate life and I started working for myself, I'd be working for myself. Well, no, I don't. I work for millions of bosses, mm -hmm. quite literally. Um, and so I, I don't see any number of users as being a minimum, like too low to try and get feedback. The lower your user base is, the more feedback you need, right? Because you've got to figure out how you can engage them, right? Yep. What, what was it that they liked? What was it that they didn't like? And if you can't get feedback from your, your active users there, put an update in. Do something that, that engages them. If there's something in the app that you can give them as a, as a bonus, uh, points for a game or, you know, some, I don't know, offer them, hey, I'm gonna, here's a free feature. All you have to do is provide feedback. Now, if you do those things and if you create a feedback, you want to get feedback, make sure you create a feedback form. So what I do is I create an actual page that is, goes into my core library and goes into every single app that I build. And it is literally uh, a combo box at the top that says uh, feedback or, or um, what was it, uh, support or feedback. And then a text, text box that allows them to type their, their feedback in. And then a, a button at the bottom that looks like sending an email. So what happens is that allows me to make sure that I'm not getting a whole bunch of, I, I know how to say sent from my Windows phone in pretty much every language the phone supports now. <laughs> um, because at the beginning, I didn't do that. And I used to just get all these empty emails because when kids get the phone, they go, oh, feedback, click, click, send. And they, they send me an empty email that has someone's email signature and their email address, and that's it. That's not valuable to me. That actually wastes a lot of time because I've got to go through them and check them and delete them. So what you want to do is create a form that allows you to vet that there actually has been some feedback sent. Does that answer your question or? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I'm just, Jason has a blank look on his face right now. No, I, what <laughs> I was, what I'm, I'm thinking right now. So I, I have, I have an app and what I did initially, and I guess you have to tell me what I should do here. So I, I don't have a whole lot of downloads on it. Um, which is, I guess I really don't care. Um, <laughs> cause I mostly wrote the app for myself. Um, but what it does is whenever you, uh, whenever you've been sitting too long, you'll get a notification and I actually got it. It works with the band too. So, um, you know, like today I was, I was sitting for lunch at my, my kid's school and, uh, you know, my, my, my band vibrated and I looked at it and it says, you know, you've been sitting too long, get up and, and move. But anyway, the, the, the app itself, it has like a text description and then I have, um, there's an on off switch inside of it. Uh, there's really no other configuration, but then there's a button that says, uh, I think it just says feedback. And uh, if you push it, what it actually does is it creates a new email, uh, you know, with like the subject, like app feedback or something like that. And it has my address in it and, uh, actually did get one email, but it was just blank. Uh, somebody obviously was just, they were seeing what that button did. And then instead of pushing back, they hit send. Yeah. Um, so I have one blank message. So I guess my, my question is, is there, is there any way for me to use, uh, you know, the work you've done on the feedback mechanism in my own app or, or should I just keep it the email? Um, well, what I'm working on, I'm working on getting uh, a set of controls out. I actually have, 
uh, a number of controls that I've made for myself that I'm thinking about releasing to users as a control library. Yeah. The only issue is making sure that I can get it done and vetted properly so that it, I'm not creating any problems for any people. So right. there's a lot of testing process that goes in place with that um, and documentation. But I'm pretty sure that uh, I can connect with you and we can get you something okay. that, would, that would help you. And and I do the same thing with other developers as well. If they're looking for um, how to do something or, or a control or something, there's different parts of my library that I'll parse out and say, okay, this is ready sort of for some consumption, but realize <laughs> this or this or this. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it was obviously built for your app or whatever. So Well, yeah. no. So what I do is I actually, I, I'm, and this is the other thing is you're going to make a lot more money uh, with your apps and be more successful overall as a brand. If you have a number of apps out, uh, mm-hmm. if you only have one or two apps out, uh, I find that you, you could have a great app and it'll be fantastic. You'll sort of hit a sort of a plateau and you will sit there until you've either updated or changed or whatever. But what I find is when you have a group of apps, every time I release a new group or I release an update for one, all of them across the board start to get more downloads and updates mm-hmm. uh, or more, uh, more feedback. So it ends up being a, a fairly um, almost a biologic thing that they sort of create this self-sustaining entity. Um, so to that end, a massive amount of the work I do in my apps goes into a core library that I like. I've never I never write a converter twice. Right. So if I make a converter that can be used generically at all, I genericize it as much as possible, put it in the library, and then that way that converter. Because how many times have you copied code from one app and put it into another? Mm-hmm. I don't. I copy it from the first app and I put it into the core library and make it generic, and then I refer to it in the first app and then put it in the second app, and then that way. I'm constantly growing my library app and also it makes things much more supportable and sustainable and maintainable because uh, if I fix something in one place, I fix them for all the apps that use that and then I just put out a, a pile of updates. So I have periods of time where I just put out tons of updates and, and release new apps and different things like that. But uh, I find that uh, doing that makes it much, makes your, it also forces you to separate concern, think about architecture differently and I find that it makes my apps a lot more efficient. Yeah, I've really been trying to do that. I try to I try to have an open source repository that contains like that particular thing. And then I also create it as a NuGet package and then I include it that way. Um, I can I can go into my projects and update those NuGet packages as needed. And I have fine grained control over what I pull in. Yeah, no, that's that's it's a great way to do it. Yep. So what is the uh, the biggest piece of advice that you would give to a developer or maybe maybe the most important piece of advice? The the first thing is is that when I when I started writing apps, I thought I'm a strong developer. I've always been promoted everywhere I was. I you know I made really good money. Mm-hmm. I figured I've got this, no problem. I've been writing all sorts of different kinds of software for years. It's a different animal. You're going to be learning different things, and you need to you need to be ready and aware of that. Um, and you need to make sure that you're willing to experiment and test. And and uh, be willing to take feedback, right? Mm-hmm. The, the biggest the biggest thing that you can you can do is engage your users and make sure that they uh, understand that they can reach you and that they can um, they can count on you for for help and advice when it comes to your apps. Um, that to me, I think it, it's probably one of the biggest things I would say that I would I would tell to a new developer. The other thing is. 
understand what you what you want to what you want to do uh, what your what your term of success is like you said your app was something that you built for yourself you don't care if anybody else downloads right i've got other apps that i've got an app that's been in beta for seven months because i love it <laughs> and i just honestly i built it for me i don't care if it ever makes it to the marketplace i use it all the time it, it'll eventually get to the marketplace but it's not my focus for it right the focus for it was to get this app on my phone because i needed it to do what i needed to do um I was just thinking earlier too, when we were we were talking about your your app. What could you do to engage more of your users? Um, you could have it vibrate and show a, a thing. Hey, give me feedback on blah blah blah. Or what else could I do with this app to make this app more useful for you? Yeah. You could literally have it do the same feedback it does when you're, you know, when you're not moving to go. Hey, haven't heard from you in a while. Talk to me. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. So, I mean, you've literally built in uh, a one way communication right there. What you need to do is maybe use some of that to turn it into a two way communication and see if you can engage your users that way. Okay. Cool. Cool. Uh, anything else that you wanted to mention or uh, should we move on? Any final thoughts? Um, no, I think that uh, one of the things I wanted to do is make sure the developers know that they can always reach out to me. Um, uh, my email address is devmentor at outlook.com. Okay. And you can reach me pretty much all the time. I don't sleep a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm also, I also talk to a lot of people on Skype. Uh, and I'm always happy to help devs uh, figure out whether it's figure out what they want to do with the project or sort of uh, find uh, an answer to an issue. And one of the things I've always said to people is that if I don't know the answer, I probably know the person who knows the answer and I'll, yeah. I'll help you get the answer. Um, I find that doing that and engaging devs that way, I find we all learn more mm-hmm. and I think it makes it all, us all stronger. So I really, that's one of the reasons I really like .NET is because of the community. So I just want the developers to know that they can reach out to me in re- anytime. No, that's great. And you definitely, uh, you've definitely given off that vibe. And I know that, uh, um, like I said, I've really enjoyed the conversations of the past and I, I've learned a ton from you as far as, uh, app development. I just need to, uh, uh, you know, actually make some more. <laughs> I have, uh, um, I just have, I have the one and I well, actually, I have, I've published a couple apps, but, uh, uh, I, I need, you know, something a little bit more, more significant, but I think I'm going to keep adding features to my, uh, my keep moving app. So see where that goes. Uh, let's move on to the Azure pick of the week. So what I picked this week was, was Azure stream analytics and I think we've mentioned it before on the show in passing, but this is a really neat technology. It's in uh, public preview right now. So what this is for, this gets this really works well in conjunction with something like uh, Azure Event Hubs, where you're ingesting data at scale. And Event Hubs, you can you can pull it, or you can have data ingested per hub, like one to two million records per second, and they can all have their own individual security. So it's great for IoT devices and things like that. But anyway, Stream Analytics will hook up to that on the back end. And what it will do is uh, it can it can act as a pass through. Um, so you could have this thing output back into a different event hub or you could have it output to a SQL database or whatever. And what you do in the middle of this is you actually write a query that looks like a SQL query. So if we said, uh, you know, like select star from data. Um, if, if that's literally what we did, this thing would just pass all that data right through it to the, to the, um, you know, to the destination. So you could take data from event hubs and have it, uh, get, just get stored in a SQL database as an example. 
But where the power is here is whenever you actually start to build up a query. And this lets you write uh, uh, what I would call like a temporal query. So you're not just querying data that's sitting at rest. You're actually writing a query against the data as it goes by. So if you're looking for certain patterns in that data, certain thresholds, you know, alarms, things like that, uh, you can actually write that in your query and you can do things like um, uh, tumbling windows where you're actually comparing different uh, time frames. So you can say, you know, the last five minutes versus the five minutes before that, or say, um, you know, the last five minutes on sort of a rolling basis. So it's, you know, uh, you know, from, from one o'clock to, to one Oh five, from one Oh one to one Oh six and, and do comparisons there and look for, for patterns in that data. And you can have the output of that query, then output to SQL server, or like I said, blob storage, uh, back to event hubs, things like that. And this is kind of neat because it's taking, um, you know, th- this, this technology isn't really new, but what it does is it makes it uh, pretty accessible who's with, for somebody who's familiar with SQL uh, but let's add that that temporal component to it and do that real-time analytics on data as it flows by. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. And then, Carl, what do we have for the app of the week? Yep. <clears throat> the app of the week this week is Wolfernet Alpha. Uh, just came out with its official Windows phone app. And Ooh, I didn't for the, see that. And for those of you who aren't aware of what Wolfram Alpha is, it's it's kind of a, a knowledge engine you know, a lot of people think of, you know, going to Google when they want to find something, but this will actually go out and aggregate data and calculate things on your behalf. And this app kind of puts the power of that into your pocket. Um, it is a paid app. It's $2.99. Um, but other than that, it's, you know, I, I've played with it for a couple of days now. And, you know, if you've ever used Wolfram Alpha on the web, the full power is there um, in your pocket. And uh, like we mentioned a few weeks ago with the previous app of the week for that, that math lens, um, don't let your kids know how awesome this is because, <laughs> because, you know, once again, you know, it will do their math homework and show them the steps. So when they have to do that, yeah, just be forewarned on that. No, but, this is, yeah, this is really cool. The the whole service and I've actually used uh, their service historically because they have like a premium service that you can pay for as well. And that actually lets you upload like photos or in my case, what I was doing is I was uploading uh, tables of data and it would run statistical analysis on that data. And what's great is you really don't have to know anything. You just say, like, here's my data and it will tell you interesting things about that data. So we used it to um, uh, to do um, like curve fitting uh, functions. It was pretty cool. Yeah. And one final thing, this is a universal app. So if you get it on your phone, it's available uh, for free to get the counterpart Windows Store app as well. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, Atlee, so we got a game for you. I need you to pick a number between one and four. Three. Three. Okay, let's see what we got here. You got to answer this question. Would you rather have a chicken that lays golden eggs or have your very own jolly green giant? Chicken that lays golden eggs. Yeah, I, that one seems kind of easy. Okay, well, that was, a, <laughs> that was an easy question. Okay, Carl, between one and four. One. One. Okay. Would you rather run a marathon wearing wooden shoes with no walking or bicycle 200 miles with no seat, just the post sticking up? <laughs> I, I, I've gone on long hikes with terrible shoes and know how bad that was. And yeah. I, I think I would take my chance with the bike. Oh, yeah, that's a tough one, man. Oh, I would I mean, not. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I do enough biking anyways where I, I'd feel comfortable standing biking but you know 
going that distance in wooden shoes, I, I wouldn't take that chance. Yeah, but I know what kind of danger I would have to put up with wooden shoes. I just, the unknown possibility of that spike hitting me in the wrong spot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not willing to take that risk. Well, plus you, you can't really rest then either. I guess you can't rest with the marathon, but what a marathon is what? 26 kilometers. Is that yeah, yeah, 20, 26 miles, 26 miles. Oh man, man. Either, neither one of those sounds appealing. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's the point though. Right. <laughs> those, that was okay. But yeah, I don't know the golden eggs. That one seemed that, that was a, that was a that was a softball for sure. Ah, uh, so anyway, so Atley, we we know where to find you. I uh, will include that all in the show notes. And I know you had just mentioned that uh, the you know the, uh, uh, the where they can email you, and you you said that you're always available. And uh, Carl, where can people find you? I can be found at wbdevguy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Perfect. And for the show, uh, send us feedback at feedback at msdevshow.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. And then also make sure that you go in there and you leave us a review that really helps us out. And uh, Carl set up a fancy facebook.com slash MS Dev Show site. So make sure you go over there and like us because that will help. Um, since it's new, I know the numbers are kind of low. So anything we can do to boost those numbers would be would be great because uh, I know some people uh, I don't know. I, I guess by some people, I mean me, I, I, I go to these pages and if two people liked it, I'm less likely to like it myself. So let's get that critical mass built up. And then you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash And Atlee, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. And you are invited back anytime you want to come back on. Cause I'm sure, uh, something will pop in your head and, uh, we'd love to talk to you again. It was great. I'd love to come back. <laughs>